For some, a dive bar invokes images of decaying, money-losing watering holes for nasty old drunks. For others, a dive bar is a hip spot where there's glamour in the grit. New York City is home to thousands of dive bars. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're exploring the world of dive bars in the city with a guy who's visited more than his fair share of them. And later, how the rock group Van Halen helped to bring a Bronx mom and one of her kids closer together. Part of me is truly delighted that my son has inherited my loud, juvenile, college holdover musical tastes. He and I share an adoration of old-fashioned, silly, fun rock. Nina Habib Spencer's full story later on in the show. But for now, we're focusing on a new book that takes readers on a tour of New York City's dive bars, from downtown relics to bikini bars. Writer Ben Westoff visited dive after dive to put this book together. Good morning, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. What criteria makes a bar a dive? Well, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you sort of know it when you see it. There's some telltale tip-offs that can help you out. Uh, Christmas lights, almost every single dive bar has Christmas lights for whatever reason. You know, and I say in the book, like, it, it looks like it's closed when you approach it, and you're like, crap, this bar I'm trying to go to is closed, but no, it's actually open. That happens a lot. Uh you know, they're just little touches. Like most bars, you pay, you know, let's say your drink is $5 and you pay with a 10. And mostly the bartenders have this trick. They give you back five ones. But, you know, so you'll give them a tip. But at dive bars, for some reason, they hand you back five. And, you know, it's so it's just little things like that that convince you they're not really trying to upsell you, that it's more just a place where you can go and kind of relax. Do all dive bars have cheap drinks? No, definitely not, especially in New York City. I mean, I think in most cities in the country, it's fair to say a dive bar is, you know, has cheap drinks. But in New York, just to kind of stay afloat, especially in downtown Manhattan, you're going to have to have those, you know, $6 pints just to pay the rent. So Here are some of the other telltale signs you're in a dive bar in your book. Upright chrome cash registers. Yeah, you see those all the time. They're really cool looking, uh, just from another era. Woody signs like free beer tomorrow. Yes, classic dive bar humor. Wood grain linoleum. Yeah, just just everywhere. You can it's, you know, a lot of nice forms of plastic. And even in the age of the cell phone, people making and taking calls on payphones in dive bars. Yeah, I mean making calls is one thing, but receiving calls that sort of just blows my mind in this era. We're all familiar with the phrase, if you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen. You write, if you can't handle the smell of grease and standing water, you probably shouldn't be consulting a book about dive bars. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these places have kitchens, and uh, I don't know, they're not very well separated from the rest of the bar. Like uh, Nancy Whiskey Pub is a classic example in Tribeca. Um they're frying burgers back there, and the, the flames are, like, touching the ceiling practically. It's kind of scary almost uh, if you think about it too much. You know, you just get used to the smell, and there are, uh, you know, a lot of bathrooms. You're going to find some standing water. You know, maybe it's rained. Maybe it hasn't. What's the worst bathroom you've entered into? I would say this place called Cordado's, which is in uh, the financial district. It's at the back of a deli, actually, and you would never know it was there. But there's kind of a secret door in the back, and you go in, and all of a sudden there's this little dive bar. Um, and I describe their bathroom as a 
as having looked like it was hit by a Category 5 urine hurricane. E. <laughs> <laughs> Mars bar is really bad. One time I was sitting near the Mars bar's bathroom, and the bathroom was so gross. Like I watched people come up to it, open the door, and just turn around and go back to their seats with disgusted looks on their faces. You also write in the book that a hallmark of a good dive bar is that everybody is in each other's business. Where was that most prevalent? Yeah, well, um, I guess the classic example would be at uh, this Greenpoint dive called Irene's Pub. And uh, it's all Polish men there pretty much, and nobody speaks much English. But when I was there with my wife, there was a uh, Slovakian guy who introduced himself right when we came in. It was clear that we were not regulars. And he started buying us shots and chatting us up. And then when I went to the bathroom, he... Uh, when I came back, I found that he'd grabbed my wife and was dancing with her to music on the jukebox. And he, you know, when he came back, he's like, oh, she's with you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of a classic example. Irene's Pub. This is a place with no physical address and no phone number. Am I right? It probably does have an address. It's just, like, not well marked. It's hard to tell. Because uh, in the book, and, you just list an intersection. Yeah, I, I never did find out the address. And there's no trace of it on the Internet at all. There's There's another place called Irene's Pub. That's on the internet, but that's not the one. You mentioned that Irene's Pub has a jukebox. When I think of dive bars, I think about jukeboxes. Which place has the best jukebox in New York City? Uh, I would have to say Jimmy's Corner in Times Square. Just really classic, like stacked soul records, you know, old like Nina Simone, you know, old Frank Sinatra, just stuff that really inhabits the character of the place. I take issue with a lot of people's characterizations of good jukebox. I think most people think a good jukebox is just songs that you would hear on classic rock radio, you know, your ACDCs and Tom Petty's and, you know, Rolling Stones. And to me, that's just sort of generic. Uh, like a good jukebox should really tell a story about the place itself, the kind of character, you know, uh, like Vazix 7B in East Village. It's It's got this really kind of hardcore punk element to it, and it just fits with the place, so... How did you go about conducting this project? Did you do an inventory of all the dive bars in New York City and then go out to see them? The book is done alphabetically. That's how you run through the dive bars. Yeah, um, I mostly just took uh, suggestions from friends. I did a lot of research. There's also a, a first edition of the book from 2003 written by Wendy Mitchell, and I use that as a guide, though a lot of those have closed. A lot of ones in my book, unfortunately, are even starting to close now. Who has been the most colorful bartender that you've met through all of this? I would say this guy at Reynolds. Uh, I believe his name is Jim, but he had, had kind of the sailor tattoos, really old as the hills. Uh, he was drinking Smirnoff in water with no ice. And he was kind of giving us a tour of the bar. There was all this weird taxidermy uh, on, on the walls, like like an old South American bobcat and... Uh, and he kept saying, whatever you do, don't become a bartender. That was like his catchphrase. And he's a great guy. You thank a guy in the acknowledgments of your book, Dive Bar Ben. Now, Dive Bar Ben is not you. It is not me. No, uh, it was this guy I met at my wife and I met at Port 41, which is a, a gloriously seedy uh, Hell's Kitchen dive near Port Authority. Uh, he lived in Bensonhurst with his dad. And so he took me on a tour of Bensonhurst dives and, uh, you know, gave me all these great suggestions. He was just a really great guy. And I, you know, when the book was published, I was trying to reach out to him 
and his phone numbers had both his home and his cell had both changed. He had no email address that I had, uh, so I have no idea how to get a hold of him. So Ben, if you're listening, uh, give me a shout. BenWestoff.com. You can track me down. Why do you think most people go to a dive bar? I think a lot of regulars at these dive bars I write about, it's just their home base. It's just their bar, and they probably don't even think of it as a dive bar in a lot of situations. As for the reasons why you know young hipsters seek out dive bars, I think it's you know people get tired of these like corporate feeling bars where they feel like there there's pressure to buy these drink specials, and you know the waitress gets mad if you don't order up. And uh, people just want to go to a place that feels authentic, you know. But, there's, you know, a lot of these bars have a sense of history. They have a sense that they've been here for many eras, and the decor reflects that. And in a way, it's like you could be living in the 1950s for a while while you're spending time at this bar. You know, the people are seem to be from another era. The decor is from another era. And if you're lucky, the drink prices are from another era, so... At least a couple of the bars in the book are actually on the National Register of Historic Places, right? Yeah, I believe the Ear Inn is, uh, which is in Soho, and it was originally the house of a uh, of an aide to George Washington. You know that it was like his vacation house. Oddly, you know, Soho was like the suburbs at that point. The backyard was filled with all sorts of old deb- debris, old glassware, and you know, all sorts of stuff that had historical value. And it's a, you know, it's a really neat old place. You write in the book that a dive embraces your inner degenerate, doesn't judge and doesn't pretend that drinking isn't the main task at hand. Now, when you say it doesn't judge, so it doesn't matter what you look like when you walk into a dive bar, you can be in a suit and tie, clean cut, and no one's going to judge you. I honestly believe that to be the case. You know, a lot of people, you know, look at me and I'm a clean-cut guy with a, you know, a Banana Republic sweater and they'd say, "Well, didn't they, you know, throw you out on your, you know, on your butt?" But, you know, honestly, I think first of all, the dive bar owners want to make money, you know, they they want customers, you know, and to think that they're going to throw you out is silly. You write that if you're ever on Staten Island, you have to go to a dive bar called Beer Goggles, but you also list Beer Goggles as one of the most terrifying dive bars in New York City. Now, that's a mixed message if I've ever seen one. Yeah, well, you know, it's like going on a roller coaster. It's uh, it, it may be terrifying, but it's also memorable and fun. Um, just for the record, there was a little misprint in the book. I think Beer Goggles did not get the highest, scariest dive bar rating, but it should have, uh, for the record. But, you know, it's a really classic place, and it's most famous because it's a place where cops and firefighters have brawled. Um, there was a situation where a cop came in and was going to shut the place down for the night because there were a lot of, there was underage drinking there. But two of the the bar flies were like, oh, hell no, you're not going to shut this down on our watch. And it turned out those guys were firefighters and they, they got in a brawl with the cops. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of thing that's gone on at Beer Goggles. But, they, but there's just so many cool elements about it. Um, they have this amazing air hockey machine. It's all uh, day glow. It's like, a, you know, glow in the dark puck and all that. And they have a vending machine that sells herbal Viagra and all sorts of other crazy stuff. So I highly recommend it. How important do you think it is that a dive bar have things like air hockey and foosball or a pool table? Uh, You know, that stuff definitely helps. You definitely want 
all of that, um, as many sort of gimmicks as possible. You know, most, but but I'd say the most common one in New York City is probably Big Buck Hunter. You know, everyone seems to have every dive bar seems to have that. Uh, you know, I'm more of a classic classic games and pinball man myself. Uh, I guess, I, and then skee ball is something you sometimes see in dive bars. Uh, probably the craziest games was at uh Vazak 7B they have like a a lawn darts game where you pay like $2 and you there's like literally beanbags and you play lawn darts or, or uh, there's a beanbag toss one and a lawn darts one so very strange there is a bar in Brooklyn that has mini golf the Bushwick Country Club has six holes of mini golf in its backyard that to me is very cool yes it's um i wouldn't say if you're a mini golf enthusiast it's worth going just to play mini golf some of the holes are a bit cramped and uh, not not too fancy, but it's definitely a surprise and a cool thing. And there's like I think there's a windmill made out of PBR cans, and there was a contest to design your own hole that someone did. So it's 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 a great bar, Bushwick Country Club. I highly recommend that place. We need to point out though that the Bushwick Country Club is not in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And it's not a country club. Yes, it uh, it's it's in Williamsburg, and uh, it was named after the country club in the movie Caddyshack. So that's where it gets its name. A lot of these bars have great names. Mr. Magoo's a really cool name for a bar in New York City. Yes, I mean, how can you not go there? It's called Mr. Magoo's. Uh, there's a, a place I, a name I like called Irish Eyes. That's in uh, Washington Heights or Inwood, one of those. Um, you know, the alibi, I think that's a fantastic name. Uh, distinguish Wacom, Wacomaba, cocktail lounge in Times Square. So that's another hallmark of, uh, dive bars are great names. You're right that it recalls New York the way it was before Mayors Bloomberg and Giuliani scrubbed the area clean. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of a cliche at this point to say that Times Square used to, you know, was made into Disneyland and uh, it's so much better back then. But, you know, if you really are seeking that experience, you can't, you know, beat this spot. Um, the, you know, I say it's by like a Dunkin' Donuts and a papaya dog and a porn store and another porn store. So that kind of gives you a sense of the block it's on. I haven't yet pointed out that you rate dive bars in your book on a scale of one to five beer bottles with five bottles denoting the diviest, right? Right. So I, I used a movie scale rating system. So one bottle is Pleasantville, two, Sin City, three, Mean Streets, four, The Warriors, five, Apocalypse Now. So it gives you a sense. <laughs> This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. This morning, we're dive bar hopping in New York City with freelance writer Ben Westhoff. He's the author of New York City's Best Dive Bars, Drinking and Diving in the Big Apple. Do these bar owners mind that you're calling their establishments dives? Yes, some of them definitely do. And I've had some bar owners explicitly tell me they would not like to be in the book. But I think more more than more often than not, they don't mind that title. Uh, you know, it's just all about how you see your bar. I mean, if you spent, 
you know, tens of thousands of dollars sort of updating your bar at one time and you work hard to keep it clean and, you know, you're just trying to earn a living. You don't want someone to call it a dive, you know. I think most dive bars, the ones that feel really authentic, are not trying to be dive bars. They've just sort of turned into what they are over time. You know, on the other hand, there's a ton of bars. A lot of them are in, like, uh, the Lower East Side, neighborhoods like that, that are purposefully shooting for the dive bar aesthetic. And they might only be a couple years old, but they've got the wood grain linoleum and they've got the Christmas lights and they've got the cheap PBR. And, you know, they, they realize that this is something people seek out. And so they, you know, it's it's there's something faux about it, definitely. And a lot of people complain about these hipster dive bars but you know i i don't really see it that way i see it as like if you're in the lower east side it's kind of nice to find a place where you can get a dollar fifty pbrs you know so i think there's uh these places really have their place you took notes for this book by sending yourself text messages now why didn't you just take notes in a notebook well i started doing that and then i got in a little trouble at the navy yard cocktail lounge x x <laughs> that we were just talking about asked me what I was doing, and before I could respond, she grabbed the notebook out of my hand and began reading my notes aloud, and I was writing some not altogether flattering things in my notebook, like I was writing about how there was a sign on the women's restroom that said, five-minute limit, which I think was a reference to prostitution, you know, which seems odd. It's like you can you can bring a guy in there, but only for five minutes. I, I don't know exactly what the deal was, but so she was reading these things aloud, and it was horribly embarrassing. And she said, you know, I don't agree with this. I think this is a nice, friendly place, you know, et cetera. So after that, I started sending myself text messages because, you know, it's very inconspicuous and you could really be writing to anyone. So, you know, it was a big help. Are most of these dive bars comfortable places for women or are they mainly man zones? Well, I would say mostly they're comfortable for women. Yeah. Um you can be expected if you're a woman to be hit on or flirted with in a more blatant way than you would at your normal bar. Um, but yeah, there's there's no reason to be afraid at you know most of these places. O'Connor's Bar at 39 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn. You say it's the manliest bar in New York. How so? It's got this really dark brown Naugahyde booths, like a big American flag, uh, kind of a rockabilly aesthetic. You know, the bartender sort of dresses rockabilly. And, you know, I meant it not in kind of like a sleazy, manly sort of way, but kind of like a Johnny Cash, kind of 100% solid, you know, a place where men can be men and and have their whiskey sort of way. So... Yeah, that's a great bar. I love it there. Why did you decide to do this project? Well, I've always been a fan of dive bars. Um, I guess, you know, being cheap by nature is part of it. And, you know, I, I have, you know, I'm a journalist and I like to find these spots that are off the beaten path. And I like to talk with people that I wouldn't normally talk with in my day to day life. Um, the project came about, I write for The Village Voice. I'm a contributor. And the voice sponsors the book, and um, they were interested in doing a second edition, so I sort of jumped at the chance to do that. And your wife, Anna, went around with you as well, right, to these places? Yes, she's a saint. She traveled with me all over the place, danced with strange Slovakian men, and 
in general, you know, she's uh, it's kind of embarrassing to admit, but she is a much bigger drinker than I. She can really drink me under the table. I, you know, have often found myself uh, finished and she just keeps going and going. So did you ever go out and not remember what to write about? Uh, there is definitely a lot of that going on. Um, my notes, my text messages got increasingly scrambled as the night went on. Uh, so sometimes you have to sort of sacrifice your journalism for the, the fun of the night. So you primarily then did this undercover. You didn't tell the bar owner that you were there or did you at sometimes? Sometimes I did, but again, I wasn't really sure how they would react. One time I was with dive bar Ben and uh, this Bensonhurst dive and it was all these Italian guys, beefy, you know, middle-aged Italian guys. And he's like, and then Ben's like, we met in a dive bar near Port Authority and now we're going visiting dive bars for his book. And all these guys gave, gave us these horrible looks. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of stammered. I was like, oh, no, it's, it's the best best local bars is what I'm writing about. And uh, and then Ben started jabbering about Frank Zappa or something like that. So the situation was kind of diffused. But, yeah, I, I you know, for the most part, I didn't I didn't like to tell people, you know, and that's I think the kind of thing with a restaurant reviewer doesn't want the staff to know that he's doing a review because you sort of want everyone to act how they would normally act, you know, and not put on a show for you. So, Let's go through a couple of bests, if you will. Where's the best happy hour? If you're downtown, welcome to the Johnsons. They're $1.50 PBRs. You're not going to find anything cheaper in that neighborhood. Um, Manitoba's on the in the East Village has, I believe, true happy hours where everything is discounted. There's this place called Denny's Steak Pub in Kenny Kensington where you have they have two for one drinks. Uh, I think for a couple hours in the early after early afternoon evening, like five to seven, something like that. You know, so I buy one, drink it, one free. I mean, that's that's a pretty amazing deal. So, where's the best place to get cheap eats? Well, you know, you can't beat the free pizza at the Crocodile Lounge. Uh, there's kind of a chain of these pizza spots. Uh, these dive bars that, that you get free pizza. Um, and this place, Denny's, I mean, they have free food. A lot of these bars have free food, but, you know, you j- you tend to get what you pay for in those cases. It's interesting because you also found some places that labeled themselves as bar restaurants, but yet there were no signs that they actually had a restaurant. That's very common in places that call themselves cafes. Yeah, Denny's Steak Pub, uh, needless to say, there is no steak. Is that right? There's no steak. Yeah, What's they, the story behind the name? The, the former incarnation in Park Slope did have steak and was a full restaurant, but then they moved to Kensington, um, you know, a number of years back, and they don't have a kitchen anymore. So, but they do bring in catered food from. I think it's catered from Costco. So, if that's your thing, by all means, check it out. It's free. Who are you talking to with this book, Ben? Who is this book for? Well. You know, I'd like to think it's for people that love New York City and really want to know New York City through its dive bars. And I think, you know, the dive bars of New York really tell a story of the city and you can sort of see its development throughout the years. I mean, all the way going back to McSorley's in the East Village, which is the oldest bar in New York. And, you know, it feels like the 19th century. Um and going all the way up to the present, uh, you can really 
get a sense of the the characters. You know, it feels like visiting these places feels like reading, uh, you know, Luke's Luke Sant, who wrote the the low life book. You know, or it feels like some of those old New Yorker writers. Uh, it really gives you a a flavor for kind of the old timey New York. So. The cover of the book features the subway in, and if I'm not mistaken, this is in Midtown Manhattan, right? That's right, yeah, near Bloomingdale's. And I've seen the outside. I've never gone in, but actually it's inviting from the outside. It makes you almost want to go in. Yeah, absolutely. It's got this really classic neon. Uh, it says bar, bar, bar everywhere, and uh, I would recommend going in. It's a, It's a special place. It's got like a checkerboard white and black tile floor and uh you know i believe you know some old red booths and it it feels like a sort of a mid-afternoon getaway with your secretary type of place that's how my friend lavinia described it so what's your drink of choice at a dive bar i like to get a jameson with no ice uh i will also drink a budweiser out of a bottle and when you're going to dive bars always get the beer out of the bottle Ben Westhoff, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, George. Ben Westhoff is the author of New York City's Best Dive Bars, Drinking and Diving in the Big Apple. Van Halen is the kind of band you might enjoy listening to on a jukebox over a beer in a dive bar. But for a Riverdale mom, the sounds of the rock group were a whole lot sweeter coming from her car radio. Nina Habib Spencer shares this story about how the 80s hair band brought her closer together with one of her kids. When you have several children, being alone with just one of them is a rare gift, an opportunity for one parent to indulge the oft-ignored desires of one child. And so I was delighted when my son decided to tag along while I did a few errands the other day. We settled into the car, me nursing a venti coffee, him a hot chocolate. Honey, you can pick the music, I announced happily, handing him the prized CD organizer. His face brightened. Seriously? No, hello, everybody, so glad to see you. Nope. No Lion King soundtrack for like the 20,000th time? Nope, whatever you want. Yes! He flipped immediately to the back of the case and fished out a black CD I hadn't seen in a while. I reached behind me to grab it. What did you pick? I asked. Van Halen. Track three, please. Part of me is truly delighted that my son has inherited my loud, juvenile, college holdover musical tastes. He and I share an adoration of old-fashioned, silly, fun rock. And, comfortingly... The lyrics of a band like this one, big-haired and body though they were, seem as innocent as a baby bunny in the face of the thud-thuddy grindy bits from Kesha or Katy Perry or whoever the kids are listening to today. But the responsible parent in me can't help but wonder if it wouldn't be better for an eight-year-old to be listening to the Jupiter Symphony or Handel's Messiah or Miles Davis. He can't learn about codas or the meaning of pianissimo or the complexities of a 5-8 time signature from glam rock, can he? And what about the damage to his tender little eardrums? Why am I allowing my child to listen to the same music I do? Why do any of us? You've no doubt seen young children, babies sometimes, outfitted in the band t-shirts of their hipster parents' youth, the Beatles, Def Leppard, some ska band no one's ever heard of, even Madonna. These shirts were purchased by, with the approval of, and perhaps for, the parents. The generation gap between youngish moms and dads and our children has shrunk so substantially that many of us sit at home listening to the same music, watching the same movies, and reading the same magazines. We parents love every minute of it. After all, if our children are mimicking our own musical and cultural tastes, they'll turn out fine, just like we did. Their embrace of our music is an affirmation of us. 
Yes, we're cool. Yes, we're loved. But they say rebellion is a natural part of a child's development. So even in today's cool parent culture, the halcyon days of every parent-child cultural mind meld are numbered. What happens on that inevitable day when our children throw open the door to a popular culture that's totally unfamiliar or unpalatable to us? A culture that we might find overly materialistic or violent, too sexual too early, or so obsessed with texting that we worry our kids will lose the empathy that comes with human contact. My eldest has cracked the door open a little bit, and the day of his total embrace of preteen culture isn't far off. He'd like an iPod touch to play games and download music on his own. He's asking to spend more time on a Disney gaming site where he meets other young kids, a precursor to Facebook and Twitter and who knows what else. I miss him already. On our errand run, I blasted the Van Halen. We played a little air guitar and did a bit of headbanging. He smiled at me in the rearview mirror and gave me the devil rocker sign with his little fist. For a moment, I was his rock star mama. Wish it could last forever. Nina Habib Spencer is the author of Raising Riverdale, a column in the Riverdale Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Don't forget you can visit wfuv.org slash cityscape to get past editions of the show. Look for us on Facebook and Twitter. We're listed as WFUV Cityscape. And before Christmas, we're hoping to get 200 likes on Facebook and 300 followers on Twitter. Help us reach our goals. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to senior producer Andrea McCreary and producer Morlene Chin. Have a great weekend. Yeah.